Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing Jesus, he fell at his feet and besought him, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. From the Gospel according to St. Mark, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. What would you do if your child was dying? For those of you who don't have children, you just have to imagine it for a moment. Some of you, as soon as you heard that question, you started tabulating in your heads. What are the best, the absolute best hospitals? Some of you are figuring out, where can I find the absolute best doctor? Living in Waco as we do, you may be thinking, do we drive to Temple or Austin or Dallas or Houston or Washington, D.C., or New York, or Chicago, or London, or wherever the best hospital is. Are the local hospitals enough? Others of you immediately took the matter to prayer, thinking, what would I pray? Some of you might have even thought, where would I pray? Would I run to the church? Or something else entirely? How on earth could I pray? What phone calls would you make? Would you quit your job to be devoted to the care of this child full time? And after these first considerations, well, we all know who we are now, you'd probably go on Facebook or set up a Caring Bridge site. A friend of yours would set up a GoFundMe to cover hospital bills. The community would spring into action. Over the years, I've been called to the hospital with one simple summons. My child is dying. Please come quickly. It is a desperate moment when faith is being put to the test, when everything else in the world stops and life gets incredibly simple. But note what doesn't happen. That parent does not sit there and ask, what can I do to save my child? Even in this modern world, the conviction of parents is not that you're not quite sure what to do, is that when you're not quite sure what to do, You do not trust yourself or your own powers. You call in the professionals. You call up the best doctors. You even call in professional clergy, and I hate that word, by the way, to pray. I've knelt down next to bedsides and with tears in my eyes, besought the Lord to act, to come into that hospital room and heal. And I've watched as the parents of that child simply couldn't pray, paralyzed by fear. In today's gospel, we have this account of a ruler of the synagogue whose 12-year-old daughter is at the point of death. To use his own words, the little girl is on the edge of the end. Those of you who read Greek, you you can find it. It's amazing. Or she's at her last. In fact, the man uses two forms of words meaning death to emphasize just how in extremis his daughter is. And this man's concern does not merely extend to the end of his daughter's mortal life, her natural life, but of her eternal life. There is directly and clearly an eschatological sense in the man's approach to Jesus. Not only in the sense that he says she is nearing the end, but in that he says she is nearing the eschaton. And he asks for her to both live and be sothe, saved. 
It will strike modern readers as strange that this man would be concerned for eternal realities as much as, if not more so, than temporal ones. We modern people are firmly convinced that death is entirely a biological process. Cells shutting down, neurons stopping firing, hearts stopping beating. But for ancient people, and we Christians are an ancient people, the two are directly related. Death is brought on by sin as much, if not more so, than anything else. It is a direct consequence of transgressions. What we don't mean is that a person who is dying is dying because of this sin or that, but that the general condition of human life is a terminal disease. This ruler of the synagogue understands this because he is not only a man of his times, but because he is thoroughly versed in Holy Scripture. And it is here that we see why this ruler of the synagogue now throws himself at Jesus' feet. His concern is not merely for his daughter's body or her bodily life, but for the whole of her life. The doctors could only ever heal the body. The God that he has called upon in the synagogue is a God of disappointed hope, to put it simply. The synagogue in the first century was a consolation in the midst of the unrealized expectations of God's people. A place for considering the word of God and Holy Scripture, but built upon a loss of hope in the God of Israel. After all, God had done, very much gone missing in those days. He no longer dwelt in his holy temple as he had in the days of the first temple. He no longer presided over a sovereign nation of his people Israel. The hopes for the coming of the Messiah had been dashed over and over and over again. As you know, I was in the Holy Land this past week and observed the ways that modern Jews practice their piety. The fullest extent of this piety is to pray, facing the old western wall of the temple, mourning for the temple, to look east in expectation of the coming Messiah and the resurrection of the dead. Were a Hasidic Jew today to be told that his daughter was at the point of death, he would rush off to the Western Wall to pray. The words of Torah wrapped around his arms, the law strapped to his forehead, but unrealized. But this man, this ruler of the synagogue, does not rush off to Jerusalem to pray for his daughter. He does not even rush off to the synagogue. He does not run for the rabbi. We're not even told that he consulted a doctor. He stood on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, waiting for Jesus with a crowd of others, waiting for the Lord's return from this quick mission to the land of the Gerasenes, where you'll remember Jesus had cast out the legion from the demoniac. Let's be clear about what is happening here. The ruler of the synagogue has put his trust in none other than Israel's God. No other healer, no other savior than Jesus, who is God incarnate. He has come to exactly the right place. He, knows, he throws himself at Jesus' feet in worship and asks him simply to place his hands on his daughter so that she may be saved and live. Those are separate things, but they're entirely joined. We read only at this point that this ruler of the synagogue went with Jesus. We do not read of Jesus' response. We don't hear Jesus saying, come walk with me. We don't hear Jesus saying, hey, uh, you know, happy to do it. Give me a bit of time. Only that the man followed. 
And what follows in this account, and was cut out today, it was edited for the sake of lectionary length, is this account of a woman who had had a flow of blood for 12 years, the entire duration of this little girl's life. This account has one commonality with the account of the synagogue ruler's daughter, the timing. This woman has had a constant hemorrhage, a constant flow of blood, for as long as this little girl has been alive. The physicians have been unable to heal her, and they have only made things worse. This woman has been, therefore, cast aside from the promises of Israel. She is an outcast. Anyone she touches will be made unclean. And yet, what does she do? She reaches out in faith. She touches Jesus' garment. And we read that the power, he feels the power leave him. And she is healed of this flow of blood immediately. Each account is, and there are two accounts in one, is a story of salvation more than it is a story of miraculous healing. It is to say whatever maladies the people of Israel bear in their flesh, they bear an even more acute disease in the soul. Sin's effects are a disaster to the body, but they are catastrophic to the soul. The human person needs not merely healing, but salvation from sin and death, from judgment and hell. Built into these accounts is a recognition that even if a doctor could heal the body, only God can salve the mark of death and hell on the soul. Therefore, this appeal to Jesus is an appeal to a Savior, to God himself, to act in their time of need. So we need to, you need to be clear that, con- that the content of these passages is distinctly messianic. A healer alone can't do the job. A savior is needed. And that is God in Christ coming to be with his people again, to heal them from the mark of sin and to raise them to a new redeemed life. When that woman is healed of that hemorrhage, Jesus says to her, and listen to this, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. Well, that was the translation we read this morning. A more direct translation is this. Jesus saying, Daughter, your faith has saved you. Listen to it again. Daughter, your faith has saved you. Go in peace and be healed from your disease. The evangelist here is making something very clear. An orphan has become a daughter. An object of wrath has become an object of salvation. An object of death has become an object of healing. Here we see the meat of the text, not only for this woman, but for this little girl and for her father. In both cases, faith is the operative difference. For the woman, her faith is what heals her. She is, on the basis of her faith, called daughter, a child of God. I remember the words of Paul, see what love the Father has shown us that we should be called as children, for so are we, John. For the ruler of the synagogue, he is told clearly, do not fear, only believe. And we see that this is fully the case because this ruler, when he is tempted to believe that his cause has failed and that Jesus has become distracted, Jesus, rather than pointing him, to faith nearly nudges him back to it. 
In neither case do these petitioners trust themselves for this immense task. No, they put their trust in Jesus. And Jesus alone to heal and save. Note, the man doesn't say, send one of your, send one of your guys to my house to heal my daughter. Note, the woman doesn't say, it'll be fine if I just get something. Toss me, toss me something. She's got to touch Jesus. This ruler of the synagogue believes that Jesus must touch his daughter. And that is the major point for this morning. To not be satisfied with anything less than Jesus himself. To not be satisfied with anything less than a lively faith in the incarnate Son of God for salvation. Even when all other hopes have failed, that is at the very center of the life of a Christian disciple. The Christian at the end of the day trusts Jesus and Jesus alone with not only the life of the body, what she will wear, what she will eat, how she will pay her bills, how she will find health, but with the status and salvation of her soul. There are times, and I believe this is certainly common and I fall captive to this, when we are more apt to trust for the latter than the former. I don't know if you're that way. Are you that way where you say, I trust Jesus with my soul, but not with my checkbook. I trust Jesus with my everlasting faith, but not my health. You might be saying something similar this very moment. I trust God with the things of salvation, but not anything else. Not with all the bills I have to pay, not with my vocation, not with my job, not with my household, not with my children. Not with my church. Beloved, there can be no abstraction. There can be no difference. To live by faith in the Son of God means to live by faith in His care for your entire life. Both for your body and for your soul together. To live by faith and the righteous shall live by faith means to trust God in Christ with every detail. To throw yourself at his feet in worship as much in the little things as in the big things. For if you can't trust him in the little things, how on earth do you expect to trust him in the big things? The saints have taught us through the ages that every moment, every difficulty, every trial, every sickness, every suffering, every shortcoming, every humiliation is an occasion for us to trust in God's grace by faith. To trust in Jesus to touch our lives. The best writers will speak of things in life that most people today would say are evils to be avoided, even violations of our human rights, of our human dignity, as occasions for faith. And so I ask you today, what trial are you enduring? What trial are you suffering? What sickness plagues your life? What suffering, what lack has you at the end? There's really only one thing that will work. To turn to Jesus. To turn to him in prayer. To turn to him in this sacrament which we celebrate today. To be with you. To heal. To save. May the name of Jesus be ever blessed. Especially among those who call upon him in faith. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.